0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast with me, Tom Urquhart, Uh, one of the trio that come together of a morning uh, to talk all things business and other topics throughout the course of the morning. This morning, uh, Wednesday, January the 25th, we spoke to Nigel Sillito. Nigel's the CEO of Insight Discovery. They've partnered with Friends Provident International to conduct a little bit of research as to where do you get your financial advice from. Uh, No big surprise, or maybe it is a bit of a surprise, that um, as little as 6% of investors here in the UAE actually trust social media influencers for their financial advice. We're also happy to be joined by Adnan Kazim, the Chief Commercial Officer of Emirates Airline, who joined us live on the line a little earlier on. Why? Uh, More flights to Australia and by extension, New Zealand, and of course, vice versa. Uh, It is one of their most profitable and busy routes. Uh, And we got more details on to what Emirates can expect from uh, the increase in those routes throughout this year. Sabrina Saxena also joined us live here in studio. Sabrina is the senior counsel, employees and incentives at Altamimi and Co. Uh, we wanted uh, Sabrina to come in and help us out with these new employment law deadlines. Two key employment law deadlines looming for UAE companies. With the first in just over a week, we got more details. From Sabrina. And one of the big talkers this morning was the fallout between F1 owners Liberty Media and uh, the FIA, which of course is run or headed at the moment by their president, uh, Mohammed Ben Salem, an Emirati uh, who has much influence here in the region, and of course on the global sphere of Formula One and all things motorsports. Um, bit of an a unseemly fallout between the two parties. We dived into that in more details right here on the Bite Size
1: Business Breakfast. One of the big business stories this morning... It's about sport.
2: In his second championship winning season, Max Verstappen wins the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. 15 wins in a season. That is the new benchmark for the rest to challenge.
1: That is Formula One. And there's trouble at mill, Tom, isn't there, at the moment? Mohamed Ben Suleim, the Emirati guy, is the head of what's called the FIA. It's a French uh, acronym for. Federation Internationale de Automobiles, or whatever it may be. Um, so, and this is the headline on the BBC: Formula One's owners accuse Mohammed bin Salem of the FIA of unacceptable remarks about the championship value. There's a, there's talk of a twenty billion dollar bid by Saudi Arabia to buy Formula One. And Formula One is owned by an American company called Liberty Media at the moment. So you've got this weird schism at the moment. You've got Formula One, which is a commercial operation owned by Liberty Media. But then you've got the FIA, which is the regulator, which is a very different body. They're related, but different. And they seem to have fallen out, don't they? Mm. Because Mohamed Ben Salah, rally driver, born and raised in the UAE, big guy in motorsport, head of the FIA globally, says $20 billion is an inflated price, too high. Liberty Media, which owns the rights to F1, says, no, 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 you cannot say that because that could hurt our valuation. What what are you hearing about this, Tom?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's been rumblings, that's for sure, um, in recent times, but this obviously marks a drastic escalation in what has been a strained relationship, I think, it's been it's been a year now since uh, Ben Salem has been uh, in charge or certainly held that presidency, uh, and he's always been quite outspoken, out, uh, forthright uh, in his opinions. Uh, but this is is certainly an escalation, uh, more so because of the way it's come about, the fact that he took to his own personal social media channels, took to his own Twitter um, uh, channel to make make some of these. Well, they're allegations. It's not be around the bush. They are allegations and suggestions about uh, the the worth of Formula One. We, his concern is that the the Formula One is being milked by Liberty at the moment. Uh, Liberty turn around and say, "Well, you know, they've signed a hundred year contract, so um, they're well within their rights to 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 to, to, to make money from this and etc." And why should the FIA be getting involved? Uh, and to a certain degree. They have, you know. They've done very well at bringing new eyeballs into the sport. The Netflix deal was a work of uh, a stroke of genius. What was that, remind us? Uh, This was Drive to Success. Drive to Survive? Drive to Success. Um, The... Drive to Survive, uh, thanks, Roots, Uh the uh, Netflix drama or Netflix series, which basically puts cameras into the pit lanes. Uh, they follow, the four, they follow a, a number of drivers uh, and have done for the last couple of seasons. And whereas everyone would have an understanding of Formula One a couple of years ago, now... You've got a whole new audience. You know the drivers, and know the backstories, you know the uh, crazy team owners, who know the sort of the the, the, the arguments that go on, the free between the different teams. So, from a media point of view, from an eyeballs point of view, from a marketing point of view, Lipty have been brilliant. This is where I think we get to to to, to the the problem here is because Ben Salem is in charge of the ethics of the sport, if you like, as FIA and wants to hold on to the spirit and the ethics, and he believes that that is not the case, plus involvement of the PIF as well, the Saudi Arabian uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, Are we therefore (sighs) seeing... battle lines being drawn, if you like, of those that are supporting that bid as opposed to that bid. Um, we know that the United States of America, Liberty-based, liberty where Liberty are based, and Saudi have very strong relationships when it comes to all things Formula One and sport in general at the moment. So it, it is a little bit of a strange one, this one, especially
1: the fact that it's got so personal in the last 24 hours. Bin Salahim writing on Twitter, any potential buyer is advised to apply common sense, he says. Consider the greater good of the sport and come with a clear, sustainable plan, not just a lot of money. Ben Soleim says it is our duty to consider what the future impact will be for promoters in terms of increased hosting fees and other commercial costs. Liberty Media have said he may be liable and the FIA, the regulator, may be liable for any damage to Liberty's value
3: by his comments. So this could end up in court. Can we tie this in? Uh, both to Elon Musk currently being in court and Tom's interview at uh, after 7.30. Because one of the questions here, and what I know about motorsport, you could write on the little fingernail of, of Max Verstappen's right hand, but you've got someone saying stuff on Twitter and then someone else saying, right, that's affected our valuation. In the same way that you had Elon Musk saying funding secured to take uh, Twitter private at $420, a bunch of people bought the stock, stock price went up, it didn't happen. Question about whether or not he had the funding, thought he had the funding, but the bigger question also being, do you take stock tips off Twitter?
1: There's a lot in there, and I think you're absolutely dead right, because they were both on Twitter, weren't they? Mohammed bin Salem's comments were on Twitter, Elon's comments were on Twitter. Mm. It was about a takeover.
3: And it's why Elon is currently in court, defending whether or not what he said was effectively Fraudulent, if you like, and therefore, um, do investors have a case for the money that they have lost, thinking um, that he was going to sell at a certain price and and then didn't because he didn't have the the funding? And then you're going to be speaking to someone a little bit later on, aren't you, Tom, about whether or not we should be taking financial advice from social media influencers? So effectively, people on social media. I'm not sure we consider Elon an influencer. We are yet to see him with a can of energy drink or lying in a beach club somewhere in Dubai getting paid to do so. <laughs> but it's kind of the same thing in a roundabout way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if... if Again, it, it is it's campaigning to a certain degree, isn't it? It, it is lobbying of all those that are involved. Ben Salim is not allowed to get involved in commercial element of Formula One. That is not his remit. That is not his role. That is not the FIA's role. Um, so that's why he's not posted these comments... I'm assuming, via the FIA official channels. But is he allowed to express his own opinions when it comes to commercial matters and all things Formula 1 through his personal accounts?
3: Well, can other people also then say, if you've stuck something on your own Twitter, that is advice and that's had a material impact on our valuation or what I did when it comes to buying or selling my stock. And this is what Nigel Sillitoe is going to be discussing with you after half past seven this morning. Friends, Provident has done a survey to ask us whether or not um, we take avi- financial advice from people on social media. Fortunately, the answer to that was no. Uh, only about six percent of us do. Um Uh, but the fact that they've gone out there and done the survey and and asked the question, I mean, to be fair, Friends Provident have a reason to ask that question, and a commercial reason, don't they, Rich?
1: They're an insurance company. They sell investment products, exactly. Nigel Silito from Insight Discovery, the research company, joins us live just before 8 o'clock this morning. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast,
2: exclusively on
1: Dubaii1038.com. And
3: it's a week until the deadline for employees being transferred to limited-term contracts who's ready we are joined now by the employment lawyer sabrina Saxena, who is senior counsel uh, looking at employees and incentives for Al tamimi and co sabrina it's lovely to have you in thanks oh, for thank joining you us very much for having me So remind us quickly, before we look at where we are, of the big change here. What's actually different about these contracts?
4: So previously, everyone could be on an unlimited or a limited term contract. So unlimited is kind of where most jurisdictions sit in terms of the fact that it's open-ended. There's no kind of expiry date. Now everyone has to transition across onto a fixed term contract. So those contracts run for a limited term only. And what's the advantage of doing that? There isn't really an advantage or a disadvantage, I wouldn't say. Um, It's just a difference in the law. So now everyone has to be on kind of a fixed term, that fixed term can be renewed indefinitely. So there's no real change in terms of having to only work for a certain period of time, and then you you can't work for that company anymore, you can still renew that fixed term contract for for the entirety of your career.
3: So let's look at where we are. We've got about a week to go. How big a process is this for companies to to do it?
4: For large companies, it can be extremely administrative or uh, heavy. Um, Ultimately, it's a process of ensuring that everyone's on a new fixed term contract. So that means everyone needs to sign new contracts. And those contracts also need to be submitted to the labour authorities as well. So it is actually quite a, a heavy process. Is there a cost in submitting it to the authorities? No, there's no cost in submitting it. Um, It's just a process of actually having to upload those new contracts onto the portals for each of the labour authorities.
3: So the question is, are we ready? What are you hearing from your clients? Are people phoning you in a bit of a a panic or is everyone on top of it?
4: We are having a little bit of a panic at the moment, (laughs) I'm not going to lie. There are a lot of companies that that started this process back in um, February last year, but there are a lot of companies now who are... Um, trying to kind of scramble together and make sure that everything's ready ahead of the deadline. Um, partly because the labour authorities I think over the last few months have kind of changed their position in a lot of ways in terms of the templates that, they've, that they're that they putting together. The term of the contract which you know used to be three, three year cap and then the, the labour law was changed towards the end of last year. So now a lot of companies are trying to get to grips of the new changes and, and putting those contracts in place. What kind of things are they asking you? Um, Well, we're mainly getting reviews of contracts, how the process works um, practically, and that changes from free zone to free zone and obviously onshore in mainland UAE. So it's more of a process um, deal, whether or not a contract addendum could be put in place as opposed to a fresh contract and how that works internally.
3: We're getting a couple of questions coming in Mm -hmm. for you. Here's one from uh, Mahmoud. Does it apply for those working in semi-government companies, that that grey area between the public and the private sector?
4: It depends on the company itself. For the majority, yes. Um, For some of them, no. Uh, We've had another one coming in. Someone
3: saying, does the limited term contract affect people who are holding a golden visa?
4: It does, yes. So the golden visa gives you a residency, but it doesn't give you the right to work. So the contract is kind of akin to your work permit and both of them are um, form part of the same application process. So the contract will always have to be a fixed term.
3: What do we know, if anything, about the penalties for not hitting this deadline?
4: They're not clear as of right now. So in the labour law, there is kind of an administrative Penalty for breach of the labour law, that's between five thousand dirhams and a million dirhams, and potentially there's a multiplier effect where it affects multiple employees. So, from an employer's perspective, it is important to ensure that um, all the fixed, all the contracts are transitioned across onto fixed terms ahead of the deadline to ensure that the penalties aren't going to be imposed.
3: It's interesting that the people who are messaging us asking us about this are asking what it means for employees rather than employers. But it's not the employees that
4: need to worry about this, is it? It's it's both. So, I mean, from, from a labour law perspective, it, it, uh, the administrative penalties are imposed where there is a breach of the law. Practically, I can't imagine that any employee would be um, fined as a result of not transitioning across onto a fixed-term contract. So, ultimately, yes, the... the um, Onus is on the employer to make sure that all their employees are transitioned across.
3: And this comes at a time where we've seen quite a, a change um, yes. in what's available contractually to work in terms of um, people working part time, people doing job sharing. Yeah, Are you getting a lot of questions from your, from your clients about that? Are
4: people actually genuinely moving to job sharing arrangements? Job sharing, not so much. Um, part time, yes, absolutely. And also remote working has become quite, um, quite popular, especially because of COVID and everyone started to kind of adopt those flexi working remote type working arrangements. So we're getting a lot of queries about remote working, a lot of part time working as well, because the position has changed quite a lot since the obviously the old law. Uh, question
3: still coming thick and fast for you does the fixed term contract and this is interesting impact the amount of notice that someone has to give?
4: It doesn't so the fixed term contract is almost kind of an amalgamation of an unlimited and a fixed term contract so previously there was a compensation um, that was due where either the employer or the employee terminated the contract early, now you can still terminate at any time during the term on notice between 30 and 90 days. Um, And there's no compensation that's due even if you do terminate during the term.
3: What will it mean, here's another one, for the unemployment assurance that's coming in? Because rather than being made redundant, which would make you eligible uh, for the payout of the unemployment insurance, your contract could just not be renewed. Would you then be eligible or would you not?
4: You would. It would be where your employment is terminated. So it would not be on expiry of the term, but rather during the term of your um, employment. If your employment is terminated during that period, for reasons other than for misconduct reasons, you may be eligible for unemployment insurance payouts.
3: Okay. Do employers have to have a reason not to give you a new contract once your term ends?
4: No, they don't. So if, if, if you if your um, contract is for a fixed term and it expires, so you don't have kind of an auto renew type provision in your contract, your contract will expire, and there's no reason that needs to be given on either side.
3: Okay, they're still, <laughs> they're, they're, they're still coming in for you. I don't know why I bother doing any preparation for this interview. You're just doing it for
4: me. Um, free zone and mainland asks
3: mm-hmm. Mansour.
4: Yes, free zone and mainland, except for DIFC and ADGM. Uh, does it impact gratuity? No.
3: Short, sharp and sweet.
4: <laughs> um, here's another one. I'm just going
3: to make sure that I fully understand it. Someone's sort of saying if you're working for a semi-government company um, when, where the uh, MOHRE is not involved, mm-hmm. um, what are the requirements to register the contract? How does that actually work?
4: So there's no real requirement to register the contract. Normally, where you're, where you're kind of MOHRE exempt, the contract is submitted to the Immigration Authority as opposed to the Ministry. So in that particular circumstance, you would submit it to the Immigration Authority instead of the Ministry? So it's the same process, it's just a different authority that you would submit it to.
3: One minute left with you. I'm guessing from the amount of questions that we do have coming in, and I've tried to get to as many of them as I can, that there are still a lot of people who maybe haven't signed one of these or employers um, who haven't put this in place. Mm -hmm. What can they do now with one week to go?
4: They would have to do a new contract. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of labour authorities have their own template contract in place. So I think if now you're struggling to kind of get your own internal contracts done and prepared, at least have the template contract filled out, signed by the employee, the employer, and submit that. Um, and then, obviously, you can kind of put, put in place your own internal contract after that in your own time. Do they have time to do that? They do have time to do that, yeah. It's already available on the portals. Uh, Sabrina Saxena
3: is Senior Counsel for Employees and Incentives at Al Tamimi & Co.
0: Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
3: Right then,
1: talking aviation now, talking about Australia, because... My, emirates is getting back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of its routes to both melbourne and sydney australia what's your favorite sport
0: football snack pies. animal Kangaroo. and what's your favorite car australia
2: right.
0: let me see that's football meat pies kangaroos and holden cars huh right Well, you sure sound like Australia to me. We are! Well, then you better tell me again, because I just might forget. We love football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cows. Football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding
1: cows. Yeah, Emirates is ramping up. It's traffic to Australia. Joining us on the line now to give us more detail is the Chief Commercial Officer at Emirates Airline, Adnan Kazim. Adnan, sabah lahir Good to speak to you. Thanks for joining us this morning.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So why are we ramping up capacity to Australia?
5: Australia has always remained to be a critical uh, destination for us. Uh, we had uh, struggled in the beginning to put the right capacity back on uh, the road. T- today, as we announced, we are putting the third uh, Melbourne operation, uh, which is uh, coming in March, uh, link with uh, Singapore, with freedom rights between the two points. We're putting daily uh, Mil- uh, Sydney, which is coming from 1 May, And that would be the third uh, Sydney flight and second Brisbane that we already announced earlier, uh, which will be commencing from one June. Australia, as I said, it's it's critical for our network. It contributes uh, quite a big number, particularly to Europe. and when I look at uh, the community that's uh, traveling between the, the two points, the kangaroo routes, which, w- which being called I think, between the two points, uh, UK is core, uh, Ireland is another, I think, uh, important market for Australia. So it's really contributing quite uh, heavily to, to the flow between uh, Europe and, and, uh, and Australia. But at the same time, uh, Australia, they travel to all over the places, I think. It is quite important for our network. It's important for Dubai. Uh, And and it went through quite a bottleneck in the past, um, in terms of the capacity, putting back to its uh, normality. So so with introduction of these uh, flights, the third daily, uh, Melbourne that I mentioned, Sydney and second daily, Brisbane, we're going back to the pre-pandemic level in terms of the capacity, which is quite a milestone. And this is our commitment to our consumer and Australian market.
1: Can we talk about Singapore for a while? You've got comments from Laurie Argus, who's the CEO of Melbourne Airport. I'm sure someone you know very, very well. And Laurie Argus says the following. The resumption of the Melbourne to Singapore route in particular is is important. It means Emirates is going to be operating three flights daily between Dubai and Melbourne. But via Singapore, what's the situation with Singapore at the moment?
5: Singapore is almost back to normal in terms of uh, in terms of the, the city, in terms of it's back to vibrant, in terms of opening everything back to normal. We have managed to recover our capacity almost back to pre-pandemic. We have currently two daily uh, flights that operating between Dubai and Singapore, and with this one would be the third daily that uh, we're commencing. Uh, so really, I think we're seeing quite an spike of the booking happening in Far East in general. Uh, and some few points in uh, in asia uh, which is singapore is one of them we're seeing a bottleneck happening in uh, in uh, hong kong that we're putting the second uh, hong kong operation so there is a major sort of capacity ramp up that we're going through uh, particularly in asia which we have uh, i mean this financial year our focus will be around uh, putting more capacity back to asia and singapore will be playing that role in terms of linking uh, Asia with uh, with our network but at the same time it was a traditional route uh, as always I think between Melbourne and Singapore the demand is quite heavy Uh, between the two points we see a lot of people uh, shuttle up and down between the two uh, places Uh, that's part of the co-chair that we have with Qantas as well uh, that uh, as part of their ramp up as well uh, they cover some of the frequencies in Singapore and we're doing some uh, and, and it's really that meeting that requirement for the frequent travelers between Singapore and uh, Melbourne, which is quite uh, in high uh, in general.
1: Well, Brandy Scott, my colleague, will be happy, Adnan. I know you know her well. Singapore and Melbourne, two of her favourite cities. So I'm sure she'll be buying some tickets sometime soon. But if we can talk more broadly about Asia, it's interesting that you mentioned that's going to be your big focus as the Chief Commercial Officer of Emirates this year, of ramping up in Asia. You mentioned Hong Kong there. I know Emirates is beginning to increase flights into and out of China. Where do we stand with China at the moment?
5: I mean, as soon as uh, China announced back uh, by the government that they will start uh, lifting all the restrictions from 8th of January, we responded immediately and putting the capacity, uh, which is where today we're doing four weekly flights to uh, Guangzhou. That will be increased to a daily from uh, 1 February. Uh, We commenced already Shanghai uh, a couple of days ago uh, with twice a, uh, a week. This will increase to four times a week from uh, from February, and from one March, will go to daily. Uh, Beijing will come online daily as well from uh, mid of uh, March. Uh, in terms of the demand, we have seen quite a um, solid demand coming in into China, joining the Chinese New Year down there. But as soon as the uh, the Chinese New Year would be over, we, we will see a spike coming in from China, too. Dubai and into EK network. Uh, China, in general, was quite a strategic uh, destination for Emirates, for Dubai. It's important for investors and important for tourists. If I look at the pre-pandemic time, uh, China was among the top five in terms of the tourist uh, contribution uh, to Dubai. Uh, It was uh, more than close to 1 million uh, tourists uh, visited Dubai in 2019, that shows again how China is important for Dubai, for UAE, uh, but at the same time, China's, uh, I mean, they travel all over the network. I mean, in terms of uh, the spread that we get from China markets, uh, uh, it starts in Africa, in Gulf and Middle East, and into Europe as well. Um, so I think China is quite critical uh, for us. And because earlier, uh, if I look at it from uh, how the COVID uh, journey happened in terms of opening of the market, it started with Europe uh, initially, and we put a lot of capacity into Europe. Then gradually, Asia now came in on board, and we're trying now to catch up. As part of that recovery journey that we're going through to increase our capacity from the 80% to 90% to full recovery, uh, Asia will take a big chunk of that uh, uh, recovery uh, journey that we're taking. Uh, we mentioned about uh, Singapore, we mentioned about uh, Hong Kong, now we're talking about China, but at the same time we're putting capacity into Kuala Lumpur, the third the frequency in, into Kuala Lumpur that will be part of that ramp up that's coming in. So, so yes, I think Asia is under focus and we're trying to bring in that balance back between the Europe flow that we're getting that moving into, into Asia and its uh, and by summer, I think we are, we're in good shape uh, to to fill that gap and, and create that balance, I think, that's required between the two areas.
1: Adnan, clearly a busy time for you. We'll let you get back to work. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. That is the voice of the chief commercial officer of Emirates Airline, Adnan Kazim, talking to us about ramping up flights to Australia and New Zealand, but also, of course, as you mentioned there, to places like Singapore, Hong Kong, China and Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia.
0: Just the highlights. This is the Bite sized Business Breakfast. Yeah, let's talk all things financial advice. And it seems that few UAE investors rely on social media influencers for their financial advice. Most look into family, um, professional financial advisors and friends, firm peers for money management tips. In fact, only 6% of investors here in the UAE trust social media influencers for said advice this is according to a survey by insurance company friends provident international joining us now to talk about it is the ceo of insight discovery nigel Silito joins us live here in studio nigel morning to you
2: morning tom how are you
0: doing i'm really well so explain the relationship between you guys and friends provident uh, so you did the research for yeah. them is that right yeah we do their research and also their um, comms Okay, so obviously an interesting piece this one, and very moot at the moment mm-hmm. as well, given uh, the what's doing the rounds
2: in the news. Did the numbers surprise you? They did, particularly the first question where we asked how confident would you be to take uh, advice from a social media influencer, and what surprised us is fifty-one percent said they are very confident. Or mildly confident. But that's the scary thing. where a lot of Emiratis, seem to be um, supporting um, the use of um, uh, social media influencers. But then, when you gave them the option, okay, choose one from the following five options, which was family and friends, uh, independent financial advisors, bank advisors, etc. That's when, luckily, um, social media influencers came out poorly at just six percent. Mm. Uh, Social media is not short of an opinion or
0: two as well. It's all good and well if someone's judging somebody's dress on a red carpet. When
2: it comes to your life savings, it's a different matter altogether, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And that's why they've um, coined this new um, uh, phrase, uh, fin, fin, fin influencers. And um, I think these um, new breed of Finn influencers just need to um, uh, uh, be... Qualified and regulated. If they are, then fine, you know, maybe take their advice. And I agree with you. It's fine if they're, you know, helping to promote a restaurant or a new perfume. But when it comes to your financial future, um, consumers should be very wary. And um, um, there are uh, many Finn influencers, particularly on TikTok. I read about one, um, Erica. Kuhlberg. She's now known as the money lawyer. But when you look at her posts, they're all pretty innocuous. It's like, um, you know, how to um, uh, make a claim if your luggage is lost. She's not punting, for example, crypto. Um, and she gets paid about $7,000 per post. Mm. Um, so that's quite a staggering number. But there are all these other. Um, influencers who are promoting unregulated schemes and everyone knows about the kim kardashian case where she was um, fined 1.3 million by the sec promoting a um, crypto coin that has subsequently fallen 99 Mm. i mean she cannot know all her millions of followers so she got into deep water hot water with that and she's not now allowed to promote any financial products for 3 years so india for example is now introducing legislation to try and control social media influencers when it comes to financial advice and here in the uae as i'm sure you're aware and you may have registered because i'm sure you're a treatise an influencer you need to go to what's called um, the uh, national media council uh, pay 15000 um, dollars a year that's if you are receiving cash inducements to make posts. If you're just being given uh, free tickets or um, uh, free meals, you don't need to. But if there's a cash transfer, you need to register as a social media influencer. And this legislation arrived about uh, four years ago here in the UAE. So there are far greater controls. But what I'd like to see is far more controls over these influencers who are pushing, often unregulated schemes with no disclaimers that they're being paid to actually promote them.
0: Yeah, because I suppose there is a reason that a financial advisor has to sit exams, certain tests, etc., get certain uh, regulations uh, and authority granting. Uh, Do do these... do these celebrities know what they're doing? Obviously, they are having large paychecks waived underneath of FTX, is a great yep. example, a number of big celebrities, and there's a big court case over in the United States um, following the collapse of FTX and the influence that celebrities have. Do we have any sympathy for them whatsoever?
2: No, uh, they obviously don't do enough due diligence. I mean, I find it hard to understand um, crypto. So how can someone who's, let's say, a successful entrepreneur really get his head around the structure of FTX, for example? Mm. But, you know, you will fall to um, the money that's being presented, you know. $25 million is quite a sweetener for um, promoting a um, uh, crypto platform. Mm.
0: It's not the only talking point to come out of it. It's one of the big talking points. But it's interesting as well seeing where people actually do go to for their financial yep. advice. Over a third of those, or, or just under a third, I should say, of those that were surveyed, considering their family to be the best equipped for financial
2: advice. Yeah, that's often true across the world when you do similar studies. Um, family and friends are often trusted, unfortunately, even over independent financial advisors or bank advisors. But when you look at the um, data, you'll find that youngsters are more swayed by uh, family and friends and also social media influencers, as you might expect, particularly those aged between 18 18- 24 and then you when you reach you know the grand old age of you know 45 plus um, suddenly you know it's all to do with um, a sound independent financial advisors but I think it goes to prove also that in this market um, IFAs need to also up their game and improve their uh, reputation and trust amongst customers and that's slowly happening with all the new legislation from all the different um, regulators uh, particularly DFSA Uh, in Hmm. DIFC the UAE central bank so it's a lot tighter
0: 30 seconds left with you Nigel Um, just in terms of of that financial advisors holding their own at the moment or are they also going to fall foul of chat GPT
2: (laughs) I do hope not but we're going to do our worst reputation (laughs) study again soon and obviously I'd love to bring that back here when we have the results And then we'll know whether their reputations improved or um, decreased since 12 months back
0: Nigel, you're a good man. Bless you. Thanks so much indeed for joining us live here in the studio. Uh, that uh, survey is out. It's by friends Provident International uh, with, of course, the support of all the team at Insight Discovery right here in the region. Nigel Silito is the CEO of Insight Discovery. Uh, joining us live here in studio. Thank you, Nigel.